Hi, this is Midwesteration, and I'm Freya Bernson. This week, I met with Bob Easter, the stewardship director at Niches Land Trust. Due to several inches of snow and my lack of four-wheel drive, we started in the town of Attica, where Bob picked me up in a vehicle that was much less likely to get stuck. Masks on and windows down, despite it being about 20 degrees Fahrenheit, we headed out to Whistler Hare Woods. The interview picks up in the pickup, so there are some associated driving sounds, but it was totally worth it to capture what Bob had to say. So, let's get started. So yeah, Fountain County, uh, we have most of our property in Fountain County is in Shawnee Township, and that includes Shawnee Bobster, which is now over 500 acres. And it's only one parcel away from being physically connected to Portland Arch, which is a national natural landmark, and it's over 500 acres as well. And then just down the road to the east, uh, we have a block of properties that we're starting to work on along the Big Shawnee Creek, uh, which is one of the major tributaries to the Wabash in this part of Fountain County. And, you know, historically, everything sort of east of uh, most of Shawnee Township was a matrix of prairie, savanna, barrens, and you know, oak woodland systems uh, with you know wet areas and and dry peaks, uh, sandstone exposures. That area is also home to native glacial remnant white pine, which is a big sort of pet project of mine, working on reviving those populations where we protect them and restoring them to places where we know of historical uh, occurrences uh, in the general area and a lot of times actually right on the property we have a, a real record from an original land survey or something uh, that you know, shows that in 1820 there was white pines on this property uh, and track down lots of historical information about that. So Shawnee Bottoms is one of the properties that uh, is a an area that along the Big Shawnee Creek and Bear Creek County is a well-recorded sort of location for the glacial remnant white pine and so we've been working to try to restore those and I actually recently got contacted by a U.S. Forest Service person who well, is looking for our sort of disjunct genetics and they want to collect material by shooting scions out of the top of the trees of the old mother trees so that they can bring our genetics up into the, the upper Midwest uh, or to mitigate for climate change and sort of get pine tree genetics that are used to less snow uh, over the winter and you know higher temperatures in the summer, drier conditions, more droughts, that sort of thing. Uh, and so I worked out a, an arrangement with him that when he is going to start collecting material with the scions, that you know he can collect from all of our glacial remnant populations to use in his project provided that he returns me with some material that I can use in our restoration projects which is just a really great sort of collaboration and uh, and really it's just come out of just uh, doing what I'm doing communicating that to the public and this person happened to be a graduate student at Purdue University and was following niches and you know as we have updated the public about the White Pine Project. Uh, this guy's been following along the entire time, and so now he's in a position with the U.S. Forest Service, and he's like, well, I know one person I can contact, and 
and immediately I was able to give him all this information and he was just, you know, uh, really complimentary about the project and that's a really nice sort of validation when somebody sees your project and, and can make a parallel with what they're already trying to do, you know, being forward thinking because he's mitigating for climate change. Well, so are we because oaks and hickories, pines, those type of species, they're more adapted to survive in droughty conditions and you know they form common mycorrhizal networks with the oaks and so they you know are able to get resources more easily in some situations than the music trees and sugar maples and things that are you know moving in and taking over the understory and shading those species out and not allowing for them to regenerate at all um, and so you know that's a big part of what we're doing in concert with the detail of doing the white pine work which is a small amount of acres relative to what we have um, they you know they're only in very specific areas but um, that sort of meshes really well with the oak work where we're already opening up the understory we're already using prescribed fire reviving the herbaceous layer in our woodland systems uh, restoring prairie and barrens uh, habitats uh, to link things up and, and deal with fragmentation now that's like if you're managing land in the Midwest, you have a few key things you need to be thinking about, and those key issues are really, you know, fragmentation of the landscape, and you know, sort of loss of habitat is the number one thing, right? We've lost, you know, 90% of our habitat or whatever. Uh, grassland habitat is, you know, higher, 99%. Uh, and so, you know, that's a big thing, and that leads us to try to build bigger preserves rather than sort of just take on whatever people want to donate or whatever becomes available. We really target and try to grow the preserves that we have. We try to grow preserves near other protected areas. Uh, and then we also work with neighbors to, you know, instead of implementing a 30-acre fire on the north side of Black Rock, I can work with two neighbors. And since they um, have been educated by us about what we're doing and why we're doing it, they're eager to have their property included in a burn unit. And instead of burning 30 acres, I can burn 195 acres. And the work to install those bricks is not anymore. Uh, it's actually easier in some cases because you can use the road and the river and, um, and more well-established bricks. But then the other things are, you know, returning fire and, and hydrology that are disrupted. Those are big issues that don't allow for you know, proper development of ecological communities and maintaining a deer herd because of you know loss of apex predators we don't have a wolf pack in indiana so we have to manage deer and uh, we do that on our properties in november we run a, a deer cull for the whole month of november which is you know a couple weeks of uh, archery season a couple weeks of firearm season and we use volunteers that help us do other things on the property like put in fire breaks or do spraying in the field or come out and do a work day and clean up junk out of a ravine or something uh, and then those people are then allowed spots to hunt uh, we ask them to take uh, two does if they can take two does and they cover about 20 acres each hunter and uh, we have a really successful program in that that generates a lot of additional volunteer hours and people that are invested in the property outside of hunting um, and of course invasive species control is a huge uh, part of what we're doing you know at least I hope that's you know phase one for the most part on most of the properties where we can sort of get to a place where we're holding our ground a little bit better and um, but you know those things habitat fragmentation and loss loss of apex predators um, disruption of fire and hydrology um, 
overpopulation of white-tailed deer and uh, you know invasive species that are moving into those holes that are left by all that mess and so hopefully I can uh, share some stuff out here with you in Shawnee Township that will show you that we're sort of trying to address all those things at once and, and having some good success at it. Right. That'll fill some space for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, just from that, um, uh, that in intrastate stewardship conference that I think you, you all ran the first one uh -huh. and... Uh, the information you shared then was just awesome. So I was really, really excited when you were willing to to meet with me on this yeah. talk, talk about the stuff you do on this podcast. Absolutely, I'm talking about it a lot. So yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, this is a good a good format to do that in. So sweet. So right here, uh, actually, at this cross section is part of our properties that we own. This property this way is a 41 acre Snyder Marshall Woods. Hmm. This was donated to us in an estate plan by a guy named George Marshall. And uh, doing some historical research, I found out that this is that tract has only been in two families since around 1850, mm. uh, the Snyder family and then George Marshall. And uh, so that property is a really excellent 41-acre property that has very minimal invasive species. It's clearly not been grazed. Um, if trees have been harvested from it, it's been a very long time ago. Um, he put it in classified forest in the 70s, and it's a really gorgeous property. And so uh, that was donated to us. So this way is a Whistler Hare Woods property, which is also here in Shawnee Township, you know, close to Shawnee Bottoms. And there's actually an active project going on right now, and they may be actually be Ecologic LLC may actually be out here pecan mowing right now if they haven't um, cut out for the weekend yet. I'm not sure what their plan was for today, but uh, everything in between the Snyder Marshall property and Whistler Hare Woods property, which by the way has some really dramatic sandstone rock houses and more areas that are, you know, 10 out of 10 ecologically it has remnant white pine population on it uh, that we've already been working to open up and, um, and augment with some local genetics as well. And there's six private landowners in between that parcel and this one. And so that all together makes up 180 acres. And essentially everything on the neighboring properties that's not right around their houses and their lawn is this massive infestation of honeysuckle and autumn olive and lots of Osage orange and sassafras clones um, and a lot of black locust trees. And you know, that's an area that clearly was pasture uh, up until not so long ago. And um, it is filled in with all this you know, garbage, just, you can hardly walk through it. And so we have a 180-acre block here that includes uh, 100 acres owned by niches on the northeast side and 41 acres owned by niches on the southwest side. And then in the middle, you know, we have this, like, 40 acres of um, a big mess. And in reality, if we're going to try to open up light into these high-quality habitats and sort of uh, revive the best of these places, we need to address this in-between space. And, uh, you know, if we do our own property, which has about 30 acres of this type of old pasture overgrown with invasive shrubs, if we do our own and we don't help the neighbors, our own is destined to black backslide anyway. Right. Um, and anyway, this is such a massive area filled with all this garbage 
but it's just going to be pumping seed both directions, north and south, onto both of our high quality properties. And as soon as we get to those light levels that we really need to see the maximum amount of biodiversity express itself in the habitat, we're going to be seeing constant invasion by invasive shrubs. So, uh, <laughs> uh, we've been working with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in, on the Shawnee Bottoms property for several projects. And I had Julia Chemnitz, who is our, our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service rep for this area, out to see this property. And I took her out to see the rock house and all the really great stuff. And then, you know, showed her the really bad infestations of invasive shrubs. Uh, and then as we were leaving, I said, hey, you know, hypothetically, if I could get the neighbors to agree to join the project, you know, could I... Could we do that? And she said, "Yeah, they just have to, you know, sign a separate agreement. You know, we gotta, you know, uh, dot our eyes and cross our T's, but they can be part of the project, and we can sort of lump it all together as one. And so that's what we've done. And everything you see around here, right here, uh, was all just exactly what you saw wow. coming in. That is a drastic difference. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And uh, so they are down here. Uh, it looks like they're done. They they've uh, they packed it in for the day." Mm -hmm and headed out. This snow has been good in a way because it allows you to see really well when you're mowing, but if you got to work on any slopes, the machine starts to slide around a little mm -hmm. bit, and uh, so they had to move on to a, a flatter area over there, but uh, really pleased with their progress so far. Uh, this winter, they've been out here mowing, and I've been sort of out here, you know, monitoring what they're doing and also uh, going ahead and Thinning sugar maples in the edges where we have nice oak woodland established. Um, opening up light to flowering dogwoods and other graminoids and stuff. And um, this actually, this whole this whole area out here, um, wherever you see all these little oak trees up on this hill, that was a Christmas, an overgrown Christmas tree plantation with 25 foot tall, you know, pines with you know all dead limbs on the whole bottom just this really sort of uh mass of a an area and uh we have been working with these people and letting them cut christmas trees for the last couple of years we've only owned this property for two years now um and so we've been letting them cut christmas trees and we cut one for our office we actually let the town of attica come and dig a huge one for the town christmas tree um and then but now you know time to get rid of that it doesn't belong here uh, and so we had them forestry mow it all, and you can see that I asked them to work around primarily white and black oaks and leave shingle oaks, you know, where they, where it was easy to do so. And it's great. It already looks like, a, you know, a 10-year-old established tree planting, but it's even better because all the trees are varied age, and, mm -hmm. um, and I expect good stuff to come back up in that area as well. Oh, maybe take a little walk around. Okay. I like that snow crunching sound too. Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. I, I posted a video with, that I was, one time I was walking on the pond, Scott's Pond at Shawnee Bottoms. It's like a 16 acre pond that's in the floodplain and it comes up against a rock wall and you never get to see the rock wall because it's on the pond side. And so one time when it was, you know, below zero for a few days, I was like, oh man, I'm going to go walk on that pond. It's got to be frozen solid. 
I went out there and took a little video. It's like, oh, this would be cool to share with people. And, I mean, I don't know if people are going to like that snow crunching noise out there because it's pretty loud. And, <laughs> and that was the first thing somebody commented on. Is, oh, man, for those of us who can't get around anymore, it's nice to hear that. Mm-hmm. Let's actually go this way. deeper there. So when they see cotton mow these areas, um, are you always doing that in the winter for yeah, soil stability? Uh, you know, mostly, yeah. That's what we do. We try to do it fully dormant and um, and do it at a time where, you know, you're going to cause a minimal soil disturbance. Uh, and they have done a really great job. Their operators are really good. Um, we don't, NHTSA doesn't usually use contractors. We We only do that for things that you know we're really not equipped to do and since we don't have enough areas that we regularly use the fecon on it's not really feasible for us to own and maintain one and store one and all that and uh, I really trust Ecologic. I spent my first semester or summer uh, internship with them years ago and I was really impressed with how they work and uh, knowledge on the on the team and stuff and so yeah they they dormant season people also do it sometimes in summer when it's really dry as well you can avoid soil compaction that way too but this place is really neat though it's got some it's already got some cool stuff out here so you know even the sad thing is like, yeah, we don't have that many uh, remnant prairies and stuff left and they're usually little postage stamps and they're not really, people are not doing enough, I don't think, to expand those into bigger sort of prairies and use that genetics locally and make those places more of a valuable habitat. But we also don't have like good old field habitat anymore. You know, you read stuff and it's like, oh, this occurs in old fields. It's like, oh, wow, they must have been pretty nice. You know, now almost all those old fields are herbicided out and so this right here is a really neat thing because on these edges is you know I've seen spiranthes orchid here already mm-hmm. and some bracken fern just a few plants uh, spreading dogbane uh, and you know out there's just rough leaf golden or uh, sorry gray golden rods solidago nemoralis and broom sedge just some you know old field species but you can tell there's a potential that there'll be quality there that's released when you can start doing some prescribed fire. We actually also collected some Carex hirsutella out in this opening to use in a restoration at Shawnee Bottoms just down the road. Um, so that I expect to revive well. And there was some native field thistle and, you know, butterflies all over that. And so, uh, you know, not trying to reset everything and sort of, you know, do a fresh planting here. It's got enough remnant quality I think in just in the old field here that we can revive that and so taking all those Christmas trees down and there was other stuff in there some sycamore trees you see some big sycamores on this edge Mm -hmm. over here they had seeded into the planting Uh, but the planting the Christmas tree planting actually ended up being a pretty good nurse for those oak trees Mm -hmm. and that's kind of an indicator to me that if there are oak trees that are out there that have survived likely there are other things sedges and um forbs and, and other things that will come up and um, express themselves after being fully cleared and opened up like this. And we also treated sassafras all along this perimeter here. 
the entire perimeter. Mm. Yes, sassafras is a native tree, but it's notorious uh, re-sprouter and can you know cause you way, way, way more trouble than uh, a non-native species in these edges because we're going to have a fire go against this edge. And if those trees are standing there alive and you burn over them, they're going to, you know, sprout everywhere. Mm. And I've heard recently people say, oh, you just have to burn in the fully dormant season and it won't. Well, I've seen sassafras respond <laughs> at any time of year that it gets burned. Um, so that's sort of, a, uh, I think that's an oversimplification that's going around. But uh, so we treat the sassafras ahead of the burn uh, and then also... As we'll walk along the edge, you'll start to see there's maples that I've already thinned in there as well. And so doing the project on the scale has really allowed us to sort of uh, speed things up, you know, sort of by, you know, four or five years, really, because mm -hmm. in the past, I would come into a place like this, we would do most of the invasive work by hand, you know, cut stump treatments, which is great and gets good results, just takes a lot of time. Um, and then, you know, after that, you go into a thinning phase and, um, start to, you know, thin the sugar maples and shade tolerant trees and things. And really here I've been able to, since Ecologic is here, fecon mowing, and we hope to get some uh, funding and things together to get them out here to help on spraying too. Um, hopefully we can get all of that sort of knocked out in, in a season where, you know, it's reasonable follow-up after that. And I don't have to wait now because those things are not going to produce seed this year. So I can go ahead and thin over here. We can go ahead and burn. Um, open up light and really in my experience so far over the last 10 years I can see that when you thin and you burn simultaneously in the same dormant season mm -hmm. you get fantastic results uh, mm. doing just the burn and no thinning doesn't really draw much out of the seed bank doing just the thinning and not removing the leaf litter layer that doesn't really do much either mm -hmm. really sometimes it can be very disappointing where you just don't see anything change but if you do those two things, you know, within a year or so of each other, uh, you can see major changes happen really quickly. And then those are more lasting sort of experiences because then, you know, yeah, the leaf litter may build up for the next two, three years and sort of stifle those things again. But since you sort of boosted everything all at once, now when you do that next burn, you can actually go and thin in response to what's happening. You can look at, okay, well, this area has established all these great, really conservative plants let's thin a little bit more here. And so, you know, if there's any maples left, we'll take those. Maybe we'll take beech trees, um, you know, all the shade tolerant things. And then you sort of look at, okay, what's left that's not shade tolerant. And then you sort of go down the list of, well, I really don't want these sycamores reproducing up on this oak ridge. So, you know, you start to take out, you know, some stuff like that. And in some places where we've got the white pines that are doing well on the ridge, I'll ring mature oaks because, there's plenty of mature oaks around, but the pines are just really sort of concentrated in specific areas. And, you know, in order to, you know, protect those state rare you know, species where they occur naturally, uh, sometimes you got to cut some oaks too. It's sort of a hierarchical sort of thing that you got to, you know, make choices. And, mm -hmm. and you know, really uh, recently watched this um, seminar or webinar um, from a person from Michigan State University, and I can't remember his name, it's terrible, uh, but he his research stations are in Tennessee, and, you know, they show all these places where they're doing thinning and prescribed fire matched up, and it was just, like, total reinforcement of exactly what I'm seeing. I mean, 100-fold increases in Forbes in some of these places. That's insane. Mm -hmm. You know, you go from five Forbes species to, you know, 
this massive, you know, explosion of species. And I've seen the same thing happen on our properties to the point where in one of them that's seen really big invasive removal at Shawnee Bottoms and then subsequent thinning and two good fires, we had a yellow lady slipper come up in there and, you know, with like five blooming stalks. Now that plant was definitely there before, yeah. but we never saw it. And I mean, I've spent plenty of time in there over the five years previous and, you know, it just wasn't expressing itself. So, you know, that's connected to a population that's at Portland Arch that has mm-hmm. increased really well with their fire program and, uh, and also thinning management as well, where they've thinned the maples out, they did fire, they went back and controlled sassafras after it resprouted a bunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which probably could have been done before easily uh-huh. more easily but you know we've all done that and made those mistakes and but um yeah uh i'm yeah. i talked myself out but. oh no you're fine what are you doing <laughs> to to keep uh, to treat the sassafras uh use a basil treatment with uh garlon four and uh-huh. basil oil uh-huh. um i find that mixing that at um, a five to one concentration or about 16 and a half percent or so, uh, will generally work on any size stem of species that are, uh, susceptible to that treatment, which I find that sassafras trees and Osage trees can be treated much larger than what they're labeled for. Mm-hmm. You just have to be careful not to over apply uh-huh. per acre or, you know, just be, uh, sort of aware of that if you're if you're applying more in those areas uh-huh. but i've never had any casualty non-target trees or anything like that and uh you know the sassafras is, is tenacious and there's going to be re-sprouts of it but uh you know it really clogs up this edge you can see yeah i mean it's really filled in there and there are flowering dogwoods and other stuff in there that's you know what we want to see thrive and uh, it's just not going to happen with those sassafras thickets. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I was working on that, the opposite ridge. So, my basically has been everything on this ridge going around this way and all the way around to there. And all the sassafras is done in those areas too. And then there's a, we'll be able to see the, the bluff that's got the pines on it. There's actually two locations with pine trees. One of them only has one um, existing tree. Let's take this. One existing tree and then the other area is like a five acre sandstone promontory that's kind of set off from the Big Shawnee Creek. And it's got six existing trees on three corners of that promontory. This is a really cool place. Yeah, no, I mean, I love seeing the the little oaks. It's just, <laughs> they're just refreshing to see young oaks. Yeah, I mean, this is a, I mean, to me, this is just an oak opening. And, like, again, one of the most rare habitats without, you know, going in and doing a clear cut, which, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, where that can be done, preserve oak forests and early successional forests, it, that should be done in some cases. so crazy to look back at this you know it just was like it was just a wall of twigs basically, you know like you couldn't see anything in this whole section all the way to the wood line it's just 20 foot tall piles of sticks yeah and the good thing about the pines is they don't really sprout back or anything so that mm-hmm. should be 
just take care of the rose and random honeysuckles and stuff that were still hanging on in there when they sprout back and otherwise that's a big opening yeah as a the residual mulch from the the forestry mower is that a problem ever for for these um, kinds of projects it's way 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 less of a problem than <laughs> the cut material that's just hanging around. I mean, I think we've all tried to work through those areas where, you know, the honeysuckle's all been cut and uh -huh. either treated or not, and then you have to spray the re-sprouts. And the beauty of it, really, uh, is that it's mulched up. Uh, I've never seen any issue, you know, anything negative because of the mulch, but um, it allows you to just drive the ATV through, and, you know, you can either have a person driving the ATV and just never stopping, and a person on the spray gun and they can spray as you move or you know you can if it gets where you have to have somebody come out and help pull the hose back and forth you can do that um, you could also fill backpacks for interns which is something I hope that we'll be able to um, get our interns out to help uh, in the spring and, and sort of do the remote areas or whatever but yeah really uh, if you get on top of it and by the last week of May first week of June you're spraying those re-sprouts, um, you know, you can work through them and never develop any above ground stuff that's not able to be driven over, you know, and so at that point, you know, if you get everything out that you want to have out, um, outside of herbaceous stuff, I'm sure we'll have garlic mustard come in and, you know, mm -hmm. there'll be other things to contend with, but if you can get that taken care of, then access and stuff becomes, you know, not really that important anymore. Uh, and there's already trees in there, but, We'll be taking out Osage trees, and I'll be uh, killing some black locust trees more than likely as well. Um, and there are some already, you know, 25-foot tall oak trees and some larger shingle oaks. Uh, there's a few white oaks, a few flowering dogwoods, some hawthorns spread in there, which that's always good. Critigus is a really tough group botanically, and so I, don't, I can't tell what they all are, mm -hmm. but um, I know that there's several rare ones, um, and they're just in decline because of open thicket habitat sort of uh, also another one that's sort of just been erased if it's not you know straight woodland around here it's pretty much gone mm -hmm. and let and all of those areas are on the same path where you know even though almost all of them are dominated by oak trees in the canopy there's zero regeneration mm -hmm. and Nissus is working on this like tiny fraction of the landscape so every chance that we can to we can get to expand our reach by educating the neighbors incorporating them into our work you know, that saves us a lot of money in acquisitions, right? I mean, like, mm -hmm. if you've got other people out there, I was just taking a text from somebody this morning that we helped them burn their woodland in 2017, and they were like, hey, we're going to do that, but we're going to break it up into smaller units and so we can manage it ourselves. And, like, now fire's happening there without us. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of uh, building a culture of, of proper management of our natural areas is really the big goal, right? I mean... Mm -hmm you need to provide an example as well. So you have to do some real concrete work. And of course it's all useless if you're not doing that uh, in the first place. But you know, if you can do that and you can sort of expand your reach while you're doing your work on the property and also educate other people, you know, we bring volunteers in on the fire crews because somebody will be like, oh, I've got, you know, one guy that hunts out here. Uh, he's got property over here, but he lives in a different place and he's like, hey, I've got this switchgrass that I planted and I want to burn it, but I'm, like, terrified to do it. So he's like, can we come and help you? Yeah, 
come and do the burn with us and you can see what we do and how we mitigate things or whatever and and you know he's like wow you guys are super comfortable doing this like yeah this is like burn 90 or something mm-hmm. you know for us so um we're we're we've got it sort of dialed in in most cases and and that helps him feel confident that he can go and do it you know and it's not if he's got certain parameters lined up it's not you know rocket science so here we should take a peek over this bluff at the big shawnee creek and see uh what this is all about out here this is i'm excited about this area because it's recovering but uh this stuff is the, the real treasure down here so we came to find out uh recently that one of the guys that farms a lot of the ground in the upper big shawnee creek here where we're working he has been doing no-till agriculture since 1983 oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and so you know when you drive over the Williamsport Bridge out of Williamsport south into Fountain County uh, you can see the Big Shawnee Creek come into the Wabash and it's a striking difference in water quality where the Big Shawnee Creek is crystal clear always I've never seen it muddied and you know I didn't realize that all those acres in the upper valley were owned by this guy and in this conservation agriculture for so long but you know then you start to realize this guy is your partner and he's been doing something for this project like way before you started and so you know talking to him like that and showing your appreciation to the farmer you know that's a big deal and in communications with him we actually got him to come out and bring his tractor to one of our really great successful restorations of 45 acres at Shawnee Bottoms over here that's um, it's got something like 193 species in it after the second year and he helped us by coming and bringing we had corn in the field before we restored it and it was such a poor crop which is great news for restoring a prairie <laughs> uh it was such a poor crop that it had all fallen over in the middle of the year basically and when they harvested it there was so much debris left it was seed soil contact was going to be terrible and he brought out a little disker and just like you know just like half an inch deep and just broke all that material up and it started to degrade and it, we ended up with a really nice seed bed after that and it was no big deal for him right like mm-hmm. He just came out and whipped the tractor around there, you know, for half a day or not probably a couple hours Mm -hmm. and did all that. And it made such a big difference in the restoration that, you know, I let him know that, you know, this is, you know, a big deal. And he's like, hey, you know, he's walking through it after 18 months or something and seeing all the species blooming and all, you know, birds and butterflies and everything. And and he's like, hey, you know, if that little bit of work can make this big difference for you, I'm there for you every time. Like, just tell me. And that way, you know, we don't have to have a big disker mm-hmm. to have successful restoration, even though we're putting, you know, tens of thousands of dollars into, you know, seed mixes and, uh, and you know, hand collecting stuff and, you know, doing our best to get the, the restoration as accurate as possible. Um, you know, we don't need that tractor if we have people that can mm-hmm. come and help us and sort of see how we're both working on the same thing. Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. And I mean, it, it just goes to the whole point that the whole the restoration is is a huge part for the people too you know i mean it's people getting people involved just i mean kind of helps that yeah circular uh, nature of the of the purpose of a lot of it definitely and you know a great example too is the guy that lives right next to that he's he moved into this old farmhouse like right when we bought the property and he's been watching us for the last couple years do this restoration and I was like, hey, we're going to have this event out here. Can I park some cars in your yard or whatever? Because he's got a good spot right there on the side of the road. It's all mowed. 
And he's like, oh, man, anything you want. He's like, I, we love it. Like, you, we look out the back, and there's birds and flowers. And my wife's friends are, are nuts about it. You know, and you sort of, you provide that to people. And, you know, and then they see you just coming out there and working hard every day. Mm-hmm. And they sort of realize, wow, this is, like, important and not something that I generally see. You know, it's new. People don't know what we're doing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the problem, <laughs> you know. I mean, this is essential work. Uh, and, you know, again, I mean. Now this is gorgeous. This is amazing property. The creek is absolutely gorgeous. There's conservative species all over these slopes. And really, you know, there's nothing wrong with anything in this whole area down these north-facing slopes. The stream side, you know, there may be, you know, some cool season grass and patches or something, but there's sedges, there's there's streamside grasses, all that stuff is out there. But really, everything up top here, you know, the oak habitat that has been raised, you know, they harvested all the trees, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever was in this opening, you know, it's been converted into a Christmas tree farm. This edge has sort of been, you know, gone through mesification. It's also got these really aggressive open site species on the outside of it that are you know, clogging it up. And, you know, that that portion of the property is in bad shape everywhere. There's like no places that are naturally getting, you know, there's no passenger pigeons to rip all the limbs off the trees when they fly through. There's no, you know, fire that is naturally occurring over the landscape. There's no people, you know, cutting pole-sized trees to build wigwams or whatever. You know, active things that would mm-hmm. normally happen in the woods where people are living just don't happen here anymore. People walk through the woods. They go out and they hunt a deer maybe in, you know, in the wintertime and... You know, that's like about all they do in the woods. You know, that some people, you know, go out and see the wildflowers and, you know, you can go into a really degraded, terrible woodland and see spring ephemerals like mm-hmm. almost every time. You know, I mean, you won't see that, you know, pristine display that you can see in some places. But, you know, that stuff doesn't go away. And then people forget about the woods mm-hmm. after spring ephemerals go through. Even people that love to go out and see those flowers, they don't know about summer flowers because there aren't any in the woods anymore. You know, that just doesn't happen in a lot of places. And, you know, there's, it gets hot and mosquitoes and all the thorns are revived and, you know, people sort of abandon, you know, these places where we're working and we're actually seeing recovery, you know, temporally, seasonally, you know, seeing things come back that take time. You know, a a lady slipper orchid doesn't just grow for a year and disappear. You know, it's not gone and dead when you see it go away. It can live a long time. And I don't know if they know how long, but... They can live for a long time. They grow very slowly. They may put up the same amount of flowers every year for decades in a row. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it takes time and effort to restore that stuff. And it's worth doing when you can see the patchwork healing where, yes, the stream side is the veins of the landscape. And that's, you know, if everything's connected along the stream, you've got a chance still to do something good. Mm -hmm. But, you know, outside of that immediate stream valley, there's a lot of issues that, that need attention. Yeah, yeah, because it's just going to keep creeping yeah. in there. just keeps creeping, and, you know, the maples are patient. They'll wait forever yeah. and ever in the understory. And so this is, like, the first pine tree over here.
Yeah, you know, I mean, you look around here and you see all these trees cut down and a lot of people uh, devastated. It's ruined, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, trust me, uh, this is what has to happen here. And, uh, you know, I, it was hard to do. The first time you go out and you cut a bunch of native trees, it feels weird. Mm -hmm. But then when you see what you can do, uh, what you can make happen for the whole system as a whole, I have no problem cutting these trees now, you know. Every direction that's wooded here for, you know, thousand miles has got maple trees, you know, as the main tree yeah. in the understory and the and the midstory and plenty in the canopy. And, you know, that's just not the case for, you know, oak hickory species that are struggling to regenerate everywhere. I mean, this is a big crisis happening like in the south they're trying to, you know, revive these oak species that are like, "Oh, we haven't seen any regeneration for 100 years." like okay well maybe we should uh think about what needs to be done here and yeah. uh you know i just can't uh i can't fathom the idea that saving these species from blinking out is not worth all of this effort because it is a lot of effort but i mean how can you just stand by and know the facts and just ignore that this stuff's like disappearing wholesale i mean mm -hmm. um yeah i can't that and the you know unknown results of everything disappearing and what's going like that loss of genetic diversity when when climate change continues and uh yeah just it's uh there's so many reasons to cut down yeah. the trees and you don't need to know every <laughs> specific reason you know and it is weird you know like i'm here doing this great valuable conservation work but here this is what i see you know uh -huh. i look out here and i see all these maples before I cut them down and now I can breathe and I can and I can see but here this is what I see too uh -huh. shooting stars yeah you know I mean there here's the shooting star capsule sticking out and blue stem goldenrod you know that's the little cadaver botany of the stuff that's sticking out of these places these shooting stars go all the way around this ridge this way but they're not like booming healthy you know patches they're they're there mm -hmm. um, and they're still getting a lot of light from this edge because you know, this is sort of west facing right here so it's like a skinny little strip of woods right here and the sun goes over this opening but now that the christmas trees are all gone you know that's blocking everything on the low level of the edge and now that we thin these a lot of these maples on this ridge that's still not going to be enough for oak regeneration on this mm -hmm. ridge but that's not what we're doing yet you know <laughs> what we're doing is trying to save all the stuff on the ground you have to revive that herbaceous layer and slowly work the canopy backwards because in reality, these oaks and white pines, they regenerate best at 11% canopy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's not going to happen soon. Yeah. You know, all these places are basically at 100%. You know, and we go through and we work them and we get them down to 90% or 85% maybe. Um, but, you know, that's not going to happen yet. But we still have a lot of oak trees here. So if you promote the health of these ones that are, that are hanging on in here as smaller stems or even just the larger ones, I mean, here's a really nice white oak right here mm -hmm. that will live for another 150 years in that spot, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't have to do everything today, but we need to save the herbaceous layer and get it revived as quickly as possible because that, you know, you're replenishing seed banks. You're, that's the life of this place is all the stuff that lives on the ground and under the ground. Mm -hmm. And in reality, you only need, you know, five good oak trees on this whole place to have an oak savanna mm -hmm. i mean that's and if you got to that point moving the canopy backwards you would probably have a, you know a rich uh, sort of type of savanna and you don't have to worry about you know one tree can 
you know, a small group of trees can, uh, you know, be the starting point of a whole big forest. And so this has happened before to these trees. You know, they've been in systems in the past where everything got, there was no fire and everything got shady and they lived for a chunk of time. And then something comes along and sort of restarts the process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need to do that now because we're just getting to the point where, um, we're just watching everything disappear and it just, uh, you know, it's time to sort of stop the progress in the wrong direction and start the process of building momentum in the other way. And mm -hmm. it's sort of a, a positive feedback loop of, you know, you, you have less fire and then, you know, so you fill things more in, you get more shade tolerant. Well, now it's less likely that you're going to have a fire. And essentially it's to the point where there's no chance that it'll just randomly happen mm -hmm. uh, in these woodlands. And, you know, if you lose all that oak leaf litter, you don't have fuel for the fire anymore. And, and, you know, looking at this right here, like, okay, well, I had to cut all these maples here for sure. Cause they're going to sit here and wait forever and they're never going to let any oaks grow, but they're going to shade everything else out in the meantime. But if I don't take care of these too, mm -hmm. they're going to fill this whole spot with a sassafras clone. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there's nothing that's going to stop that, and it's not going to... I will have done nothing for the herbaceous layer if I allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so it's complicated, and it's difficult, but it's very much worth doing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just just so much... There's so much work and so much thought that has to go into these. But, yeah, it's, it's amazing that, like there are people like you who are willing to do it <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and you know I'm, I'm an intense person I need something like this to keep me occupied but uh, you know I have my my share of frustrations about you know what stands in the way of progress and uh, and you know you got things where I'm out here calling my you know state representative to tell them that they shouldn't you know deregulate all the wetlands in the yeah. state as I'm working to try mm -hmm. to save this scrap of land with all my sweat and and might and you know I have to call and be like hey please can you not destroy all the rest of the wetlands for no reason uh you know that's really frustrating yeah yeah So this spot actually has been um, augmented with some little baby pine trees that we grew from seed that we collected at one of our sites at Crow's Grove. And uh, I planted those out in sort of in the midst of uh, the initial maple thinning here. And that was in the spring of this year, or sorry, spring of last year. And uh, they're all doing well. They're out here in little cages. And so the idea is we got this slope here. We got one, one uh, sort of decent-sized pine tree on the end of the bluff, and uh, go ahead and bring in some local genetics from Crow's Grove and put them in here, so that in the next round of sort of uh, species or individuals that are going to produce cones and and reproduce, we'll guarantee that there's going to be some local intercrossing of local genetics. A lot of times this tree is going to self itself or it's going to get catch some pollen from somewhere else, which studies that I've read have showed, you know, pine pollen can travel like in the atmosphere. Hmm. So you can get, you can catch some pollen from way far away. Uh, and the likelihood that it's going to catch some from somebody's yard or something close is pretty good. So, 
you sort of up your chances of having good um, local genetics if you plant some from another local site that are harvested from the tree. Now those seeds could also be pollinated by one from off-site, but we've got 12 sort of concentrated um, mother trees at Crow's Grove, so certainly a good portion of the uh, pollination events are going to be um, local. And so there's a good chance you're getting fully local genetics in there, probably some pollution, but uh, if we're able to work with the U.S. Forest guy, uh, U.S. Forest Service guy, and he can get the scion material and graft it, that's even closer to, you know, fully local genetics. Um, and it's possible in the future that we could even get seed that's from, you know, the farm that they're creating to produce seed for the other plantations. That's the idea is mm -hmm. get all these, the, you know, uh, fringe genetics, get them in a place where they can grow and cross with each other. And then you've got sort of, um, you're sort of deleting all those, you know, bad genes mm -hmm. uh, that are not necessarily advantageous and you're sort of promoting all those genes of, you know, sort of less snowfall and warmer temperatures and things that will help them deal with climate change. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's something, this is slow, right? So you have to think about that now. If it's going to be imperative in 100 years, you've got to start growing those trees so that you've got seed in 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you need to start planting those out so that you've got plant trees planted in 100 years that are of size, you know, like, Otherwise, you're not going to have any resources there. And, you know, so much of this is we already know. Uh, and just nobody's listening to the people that have studied it. Mm -hmm. And that's a big problem. We need to respect that people spend their lives figuring this stuff out. And then, you know, we hand the power over to the state legislature instead of the people that work at IDEM to decide, you know, what's okay to do with the wetland. I mean, you can't do that. You have mm -hmm. to listen to people that are spending their lives doing this work mm -hmm. and you know hopefully that we're contributing to sort of practical knowledge of field work and stuff you know I, uh there's a big disconnect between academia and and uh and you know what happens in the field because studies get published like recently i saw one that was like oh garlic mustard it's fine you can just leave it alone and eventually yeah. it'll disappear it's like well that's not really good you know, I bet that person knows garlic mustard, but what other plants do they know? Do they know what's happening in this place? Have they looked at it for more than two or three years? Probably mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are you losing in the meantime while the garlic mustard poisons the ground so much and fills it with its own pathogens that, you know, mm -hmm. that it can't survive there anymore? You know, like, that's not a good situation. And so it's not practical. And, you know, you see those things, studies, you uh, know, Oh, you can use diesel fuel um, to, you know, as your applicator for your basal treatment. It's like, well, I'm not going to do that. So, uh, you know, like, go, save your study because no one is doing that. I mean, uh, nobody that I know is putting diesel fuel on their back and carrying it through the woods. And, right. you know, yeah. I mean, that's just not the, is it better to put basal oil? I don't know, but it's not diesel fuel and uh, it works. So, yeah. Yeah, kind of going off the no, that's all right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, that is, like, part of the problem because some of those those studies get media attention. Yeah. <laughs> and then people think you can just oh, leave the garlic mustard God, alone. we can just quit doing yeah. that. <laughs> Such a pain in the ass. No, it's, uh, that's no, a problem. Yeah, let's see if we can...
there's a little pine tree in here, see if I can dig it out. So this lonely, big, white pine right there, uh -huh. ideally, um, so we're looking across this beautiful cliff, and there's one big pine tree. What what should we be seeing? Well, ideally, you know, where we have sort of residuum soils, soil formed from the breakdown of the sandstone, acid classic rocks that, you know, they're, they promote sort of acidity, um, we should see a patch of them here, and that should be sort of, um, on these residuum soils along the stream, there should be clumps of white pine trees that are, you know, out competing the hardwoods because eventually the oaks even die on those edges quicker than they would up in the gravelly soils or more clay soils or silty soils. They, they die off quicker, and that's why we still have um, some of these pine trees are hanging on in these places because they're just growing out of the sandstone uh, and the soil formed by the sandstone. And so really that's sort of a, you know, the the size of the populations would have fluctuated throughout years. Um, and even the records that we see uh, in the original land survey, most of the time it just says, you know, a few scattered white pines um, or, or, you know, it lists white pine as the third tree or says um, some white pine but none of value. And that's because by the time they did that survey in 1820, most of the pine trees had already been plucked from those bluffs and turned into cabins or floated down the river by the first white people that showed up and, you know, set themselves up here, all those white pine trees are growing right over the stream valleys. You know, you've set up a mill, what are you going to do? You're going to mm -hmm. go mill that pine tree, most valuable timber. And, and that's the way that white pine is distributed over the entire eastern United States. If you've got about two hours to kill, I have a video on YouTube that you can see uh, this really long explanation of all of our white pine populations and how we know where they were and... Um, and how that compares to the eastern United States, I found this great meta study where they tracked, you know, how much white pine there was. And, you know, looking back through historical records, that can be confusing because if you were just traveling down a river, you'd think everything was fine because mm -hmm. you see all these clumps of pine trees. But if you're going across land, now all of a sudden you wouldn't encounter any pine, but you, you're not doing that. So, mm -hmm. so early records um, show inflated sort of uh, numbers of white pine. But uh, in reality, all those white pines throughout the whole eastern United States occur in the same places that they occur here. They occur on these sandstone bluffs or siltstone bluffs, acid clastic rocks up on the high bluffs, or they occur on big sand deposits. Um, a lot of times those sand deposits are next to sort of wetlands like dune and swale in the dunes. That's kind of a habitat edge of the wetlands where the white pines do the best. Um, they occur actually closer to the dunes and the four dunes in some places. Uh, and then on the sandy sort of alluvial bottoms of the rivers where they're on the bluffs above, they'll seed onto those sandy soils and grow there. And that's, you know, for the past several thousand years, that's where white pine has grown in eastern United States. And all of our places match that exactly. And so you look at it and you go, well, we know everything's out of balance here. Um, the oaks are out of balance. There's way too many sugar maples. All the shade tolerant trees are doing too well. There's way too many, uh, way too much basal area in the stems in these woods for, you know, the herbaceous layer and all the whole uh, ecology of the place. So basically what we need to do is we need to make sure that there are enough white pine trees here to maintain their population. Um, and sort of when there's only one tree or there's no trees left situation like that, you know, augmenting that with local genetics is a really sort of important step. Um, and then, you know, we want to set this up 
so that it can reproduce and have its natural range with the oaks into the future. So, you know, you're restoring fire and those processes, you're restoring the structure initially with physical removal, and then you want things to sort of shake out on their own into the future. So where the pine seeds drop from these trees when they become, you know, as long as you've got a group of, you know, at least, you know, five to 10 trees that are gonna be seed producers, you're okay in that station. And then they should be able to seed and fill in all the niches where they belong um, in the future. And so you gotta be careful with fire at first because you can't just plant pine trees and then burn over them because you'll kill them. So you gotta let them develop and sort of protect them or use firing techniques or exclude them from the burn unit or something to get them to that point where they're able to start to produce their own seed. And then at that point they're off and running and when those seeds fall, if they fall on a bunch of oak leaf litter and they germinate there, they might get killed. If they fall on, you know, a pad of moss or on some bare stone along the exposure, you know, they're probably going to survive in that area through a fire. And, you know, we'll sort of baby them to the point where we think they're self-sufficient. But essentially what we're doing is we're restoring at least the population and the conditions that were there when they were documented in the 1820s on those original land surveys. And then they're on their own from there, mm -hmm. you know, and if they... If they're only able to call that way, we're not sh deciding where they go. Mm -hmm. we're, we're knowing where they are, um, and we're not restoring some huge number. I'm not planting a thousand pine trees in a preserve to like turn it into something that it hasn't been for, you know, you know, a thousand years or whatever. Mm -hmm. But these things have been hanging on to these ridges for about eight thousand years, and so the lineage of these natural trees have been here for that long, and in the last two hundred and fifty years we've fully changed the environment that they live in completely mm -hmm. and all the conditions that they face. And so essentially just getting them uh, into a stable condition while restoring, you know, the open oak habitat all around them will provide, you know, what they need to make it into the future. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And we have the tiny little babies. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. the future of of the pines right here at about how tall is this guy in here probably it's little i mean very <laughs> small and it's like frozen in the ice i think wow uh yeah so i grew all these at home um we collected cones green cones from the top of the trees in 2017 and there's a mast year on all the pines I mean every pine not all of our native ones but all the pines in everyone's yards every pine tree I saw in 2017 had a, a little bit better <laughs> had a, uh, a mast year and produced lots of lots of seed producing cones and we were able to climb up into the trees and get some some green cones and get the seed out of there and I was initially able to uh, grow about 700 seedlings um, we had some over a couple years of taking care of them had some issues where a greenhouse fan didn't kick on and a lot of them got scorched and slowly died uh -huh. um, and then lots of other issues and I ended up planting about 140 of them out I think on seven properties um, this spring uh, and the process was very specific um, you know, we, I grew these trees in these small little dibble tubes and then I transferred them into these forestry pots and in reality they didn't like um, the soil that was in the forestry pots that well. Um, and so they didn't grow, you know, great, but they did establish decent roots. 
Um, and I was able to plant them small, which is pretty good in these places because you're planting them over sandstone. That's sometimes you dig in there and it's rock right away. So you, you know, you've only got so much soil to plant into. And so planting them small is key. Uh, and then another thing that we did was every time I planted some out, I went back to Crow's Grove and I went to every single pine tree and I collected some soil from the root zone mm. of the trees and mixed that into a cooler. So I had mycorrhizal inoculant from all of the mother trees at Crow's Grove where the genetics match. And then when we planted them, I would take the trees after a couple of trial and error of doing it a little differently. I would take the trees and get them down to bare root and sort of heal them into the cooler in that soil and just go ahead and get them in contact with that soil, mm -hmm. you know, right away as bare roots. And then as I took them around, you know, instead of lugging these big, you know, hit pots of soil, one, you're not introducing soil and earthworms and whatever pathogens and stuff because you're, you're just using that natural soil. But the other thing is you plant some of that soil with the tree and you're hopefully inoculating it with uh, its fungal partner, mm -hmm. which should fit right in where it's at and it should be able to join with the oaks and tap into a common network with them and really be, you know, exactly what they need to get going. And that was something that I learned from a Purdue professor that was from Australia, he said they did a similar project to what we were doing, and he said when they planted the trees, they just wouldn't grow, they wouldn't grow, they wouldn't grow, and then eventually they went and just put a tablespoon of soil with inoculant uh, fungi uh, in there, and he said immediately they took off because yeah. they're just hanging on, and they need that connection so that they can reach deeper and get micronutrients and, and uh, more water resources and, and things like that. So that was a, it was a pretty specific process. Uh, we introduced them into um, some properties that are sort of like, um, like in the Black Rock Barrens area, you know, as a natural area, that's a big area of exposed sort of siltstone and sandstone um, and, you know, glades that are formed by those things. And, um, and in some places we have, you know, established pine populations on this ridge, this ridge, this ridge, and then the property ownership changes for a ridge and then it goes back to us and there's appropriate habitat there that's been recovered from uh, bad invasives and things in this open space and so that's on a state dedicated nature preserve so we got permission from them and sort of I had to present this big long presentation and say you know this is why I justify it and in the articles of dedication it says if you agree on this type of thing uh, if the officials for the DNR and you uh, sort of agree that this is something that should be done it can be done and so we got permission to do that on uh at black rock and um a couple other properties that like shawnee bottoms uh that you know this creek big shawnee that we're on right here where these pines and we'll see these other this other group of pines over here and there's more upstream actually but uh this comes out on the very north end of shawnee bottoms and the sandstone exposures continue along shawnee bottoms where the old wabash and erie towpath uh wabash and erie canal towpath runs through the property and that was you know that's on the edge of the alluvial plain of the Wabash, which is part of an extension of this population. Um, similarly, um, to the south of here is Portland Arch, and that has got Bear Creek runs through there, and that's a historic location, and the pine trees are there at Portland Arch. You can see them now, too. Um, so we got permission to, you know, hey, there's no historical record for inside this parcel, but it's part of this larger sort of disjunct area and got permission to move forward on that uh, from them sort of in, you know, good faith collaboration. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the work that we're doing with the pines is really good. 
similar areas to this, like there's a place at Black Rock Barrens, Weiler Leopold property, where um, there's a single tree larger than this one on the middle of a slope. And, um, you know, we'd been burning there and things had been thinned. And um, we, I had seen 16 regeneration come up and then they all died mm -hmm. in the year. And so I said, well, that's, I'm going to lucky number 16. I'm going to put 16 trees from Crow's Grove in there. And when I do that, I'm going to thin a bunch of trees like heavier around there to try to promote their health. Because I think that's what the problem was. You know, I think this tree is just, it's in a too shaded of a habitat and the regeneration just dies because there's not enough light. And so we planted the 16 trees and I did this big thinning on this ridge and the, and the next ridge, letting a lot of light onto it. And not only did those thrive and survive throughout the year, there was natural regeneration of more than twice that that just came up from the seed bank of these pine trees, which supposedly they don't last that long in the seed bank. So they might be the 2017 uh, seed that actually fell and what we've used from Crow's Grove there. And so, again, it just shows me, okay, yeah, where you have them established, you need to thin heavier because these pine trees don't like to be shaded at all. Um, and, you know, it's okay to sacrifice oaks in the areas where you've got, you know, pine habitat. Mm -hmm. So ideally, before I'm dead and gone, these trees will be big and produce seeds, and they'll be, you know, sending seed out of here to other areas adjacent that have sandstone exposures and hopefully you know getting established in those places on their own over time and holding on in the little microhabitats that they've been hanging on for 8,000 years here. I couldn't resist coming over here instead of Shawnee uh, start and we'll see how much time we have. Uh-huh. But uh, the collaboration with the neighbors is the big, I'm super proud of what we've got going with that. And the fact that this is so great over here, but it needs to be opened up to really be itself. And if you just ignore that over there, you know, you're putting your head in the sand. You uh -huh. know? It's just not, it's not good enough. Which, that's a common theme that I have for myself, but. You can always do a little better, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, yeah, this whole big thing right here that you see, you know, the Shawnee Creek kind of goes around that way, and another drain just comes on the other side of that. That's basically just a five-acre piece of sandstone. Uh, and so you can see close, there's a couple pine trees right here, and then on the, on the other side, there's a couple of big ones. And then on that corner, there's another three trees and so that's all been maple thinned already. And that whole rock bluff has got partridge berry and maple leaf viburnum and just all of the companion plants that are found with the pines. Uh, just really great to see, you know, especially that currently they're stationed on all three corners of it. So, you know, the idea is that you get some fire back over that area and you open it up and they should be able to regenerate in there on their own. Uh, and you don't have to really add too much. Now I did add like three trees from Crow's Grove to each area immediately adjacent to where those pines are. So yeah, again, they're going to regenerate on their own, but you're going to add in some local genetics. And hopefully, if, if the collaboration with the U.S. Forest Service guy works out, we'll eventually have Portland Arch genetics too, because I put him in contact with the DNR, and he's already talked to them about putting in a permit to collect scion material from some of their original mm -hmm. trees.
And so if he's got, you know, original material from that, I can include the Portland Arch genetics that are just from right over there in this property as well. And that way, you know, it's an even closer sort of um, genetic match and local ecotype and um, they should do really well here. And, you know, I, oh, well, I will have felt like I've done all of I can to set them up for success mm -hmm. uh, if I'm able to accomplish that. Nice. This, this, that rock thing on the other side, you know, it comes to a cliff over there and then it's got a sheer face that comes down and a big rock house that's mm -hmm. carved out. I mean, and just like <laughs> sitting, you know, 40 feet or 50 feet above the big Shawnee Creek with, you know, the other side of this is all natural mural, you know, escarpment, beautiful, beautiful spot. And, uh, you know, you can sit all up there and dry in the sand and really, really amazing. I mean, when we walked out here, I actually found this place for sale on Facebook. Wow. <laughs> I was like, uh... Hey, uh, Gus, we need to look at this property. It's like, oh, Big Shawnee Creek and all these pictures, you know, sandstone and stuff. I'm like, uh, he's like, yeah, uh, we're going to have to change our plans, I think. And so we had to reach out to the guy and uh, we were able to get 100 acres purchased here. Uh, help of the Roy Whistler Foundation, which is a big, uh, per, a big group that helps fund us. And also Laura Hair Trust uh, chipped in uh, for acquisition on this one, too. Um, and yeah, we've been sort of trying to document all the cool stuff that's out here, chip away at you know gar pulling garlic mustard, which is not too bad uh, in the in the nice areas, and um, you know thinning some of those maples around the pine trees, getting that sort of kicked off, and then we've got this area set to for a prescribed fire, which I just wrote the plan for yesterday. Um, we'll burn about 45 acres of this sort of old field area where there's grass, and all of these slopes down to the uh, down to the Big Shawnee Creek. This will be our this will actually be one break, and we'll burn these valleys and ridges and stuff here. Nice. These are tricky spots to cut these maples because they, <laughs> they're like growing. They have light coming from here and from here and from here, so they don't lean. Mm -hmm. And so cutting them is actually pretty difficult sometimes because you want them to fall it's one way, but they're just like... I'm actually good standing straight here, and uh, I don't mind that hinge at all. Just I'm good. Over here, you got I cut some big ones from below, because you know they're they're growing up that edge, and then they're shading. Mm -hmm. Their canopy is just like right on that edge. And just last year, after that, and that was the first thing I thinned was below that edge and right on top around the pine trees, and I did that, you know. At, oh, at least a year and a half ago and the shooting stars on that bluff last year blew up and it looked really really great and expecting to see that over the whole bluff now that it's all been thinned and once we get that fire through here in the spring again that all at once when you do that things change and and then over time we'll reassess and okay these maples should go now too you know mm -hmm. um, they're 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 up in the canopy of this white oak not that that it's doing okay now, you know, but it had a lot of crowded, uh, you know, space around it and losing those lower limbs and there's a lot of just feeling it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like every every site is a, just such a case-by-case -case basis. Yep. Or even ask just different yeah. aspects in the same site. You can get as local <laughs> as you want. Yeah, I mean, with that description, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, 
certainly every property is different, but yeah, every tree that you cut is actually in its own unique situation and, um, and all the things around it are unique and mm-hmm. past use and all that stuff, you know, makes changes the way that you approach it. But you know, I think those first things that I talked about, you know, if you have those things in mind, um, you know, that things are fragmented and we've lost so much habitat and all the, all the places that are out there still in a natural state are sort of all on the same trajectory. Um, you know, there's no wolves and there's way too many deer, you know, that there's no natural fire happening. I mean, if you can correct those things, you're moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you're not doing those things, then you're just sort of maintaining that part of that 10% that's left. That's on the same path to, you know, being dominated by sugar maples until a sugar maple disease comes and kills them all. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then you're done. And, you know, in reality, oak diseases, you know, you get oak wilt spreading across the landscape. I'll guarantee you that the places where they're going to survive the best are where they have an open canopy. Mm-hmm. They're surrounded by as many species as possible. And, you know, they have healthy fungal networks you know, those are the trees that are going to be able to sustain being diseased and live through it. Uh, and if everything is in sort of this gasping for air, gasping for light, sort of overcrowded canopy situation, uh, they're not fit to survive. And I mean, like, oh, anthracnose has swept across the land and killed all the dogwoods. Like, well, no, shade did that. Like, and anthracnose took advantage of the situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's pretty simple. Plants need light to survive. And, you know, those ones that can survive in the shade, you know, they end up dominating way too much of an area. And it's not just that either. It's, you know, places where you have way too many deer, you're going to have lots of pawpaw and lots of spice bush and these, you know, sort of forest, um, you know, thickets that are also super shady and don't hold any good fuels. And, uh, you know, that is something that's driving composition as well. You really have to look at how things were in the past, why they were that way, and then try to fit that into a plan of what you should do with any given place. And, you know, uh, sort of arguments about not using fire because it was anthropogenically set and it didn't occur naturally is like, I, you know, if you can separate humans from the landscape for the last 10,000 years when they lived in step with everything that was happening and basically lived outdoors you know i yeah. mean you're you're making a separation there that i don't see the distinction right and it doesn't matter why they were doing it it's just what shaped you know the systems that were here mm-hmm. which by all accounts were vastly better than all of the places that we have now i mean traveling around with people that have been doing this for a really long time and seeing these places where you're you know you're searching for the one last you know little yellow lady slipper and you know you just don't find it it's like well i think we all know what happened here Mm -hmm. i mean you know we should have probably seen it coming and maybe stepped in uh, way sooner than what we have and um i'm grateful that the organization is really supportive of you know i mean niches is founded on stewardship and they knew that this work had to be done on these properties from day one from the first property you know invasive species were attacked and you know not after, you know, after they planted all these big tree plantings uh, in some of these places, uh, you know, and they got devastated by the deer, you realize you can't do that unless you're mitigating for that deer population because they're just going to, they're going to destroy everything. And, you know, they implemented hunting program and 
some of the oaks that were in the planting started to, you know, make some headway. And now those oaks at Weiler Leopold in the bottom, that was done in around 2000. Though some of them, you know, got swamp white oaks that are 30 feet tall in there. Like, well, hey, they're on their way. I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing's going to stop them now. And, you know, in some places it's great where you got interplanted swamp white oak and ash tree, which now the ash trees are dead from the borer. <laughs> but now they that's been perfect for, you know, the structure of the swamp white oaks. Now, you know, there's places where too many uh, of the ash are the only thing that survived. And now you're just kind of like watching and, okay, well, mm-hmm. we actually do have some plantings in bottomlands in South, Southern Fountain County that have a bunch of ash trees that are still alive. Mm-hmm. It's like, well... <laughs> just waiting for that other shoe to yeah. drop like why why are they still alive you know are they gonna live like but you know uh they also did some really great stuff with those tree plantings like putting in you know species like pecan uh you know which in my head you know years ago i thought you know pecan trees are like a swamp tree or something in the south like mm-hmm. well actually they grow on like well-drained sandy terraces in the rivers and so we have that i mean that's the situation along the wabash in southern fountain county and Fountain County actually is the southern, or the sorry, the northernmost county that you know northern pecan is a is a is noted as a as a native species, and so yeah, like that makes sense for climate change too. Plant, you know, pecan trees and river birch, and it was another one that you know at first I'm like, well, that's not native to this county, and you look at the map and you're like, well, it's gonna be, mm-hmm. I mean, real soon, and so this whole resistance of things moving, I don't like that either, like oh, we just have to take a snapshot of, you know, 1820 and whatever some white guy wrote down while he was cataloging all the natural resources that could be extracted from the landscape. Yeah. That's the the only resource we can use to decide what should be done. I mean, yeah. that sort of thinking is, um, it's too late for that. I mean, yeah. we, we have to let some of that stuff go. Um, and, you know, I'm not for getting crazy and just putting anything everywhere, but... Mm-hmm you know, things like that where you're you're using a tree in the restoration that is native to the county but at the very northern, uh, you know, limit of its range, mm-hmm. that's the kind of tree you should be planting there mm-hmm. because the conditions likely are going to favor that into the future. Um, yeah. You know, so luckily I came into a situation where stewardship was already really important. You know, prescribed fire was a really important concept that had been dabbled with on the properties, but I was able to come in and, you know, sort of help – uh, Gus bring that program into reality where we end up doing, you know, 16, 17 burns in a season now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we do that with a very small crew, you know, uh, a few people that are red card certified it and, and volunteers, uh, and you, you know, develop that network of people that, you know, they're interested in this property cause they hunt there or whatever they use that property. And then they come and help you with the burns. So you don't have to get the same people to go help you everywhere. Mm-hmm. You sort of can, uh, you know, use those local people that are already interested to help you do it. They sort of get an understanding of how it goes. And, you know, once, if you go out there and you show them that you have a plan and you can implement it and it's safe and fun, they are happy to come and help you again. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got it together, you can get people to come and help you and you don't have to have a huge, you know, staff that's dedicated to, you know, doing this these fires. I mean, if you want to do more than 20 in a year, you better have, you know, several good staff mm-hmm. that you can you know split into two crews or whatever but um it's been great uh i've been supported in the things that i've wanted to do with the neighbors and stuff like that and uh, i think that's just the key to doing meaningful stewardship is involving as many people as you can and you know not necessarily relying on 
um, you know, taking for granted that you have people to do work on the property for you, but building community in all the places that you're working mm -hmm. so that, you know, you have that capacity um, to come and do cleanup days and not have to get the same volunteers, you know, to travel from Lafayette or whatever to every county and do that work, you know, you just, um, you know, that's been, I've been able to work those networks and, you know, sort of follow the guidelines of, you know, the deer call that was already implemented by uh, one of our founders, George Parker, our original board members. He was the one that got the, one of the people that got uh, a hunting program in the state parks when the browse line was so, you know, mm -hmm. terribly bad. Um, and so we kind of followed his guidelines for that. And um, we're trying to incorporate, you know, more volunteering outside of uh, of hunting with those people and, you know, use that as a resource. And uh, I feel like things are, are there for us. And uh, in 10, 15 years, hopefully we're managing twice as many properties and we have a larger staff and, you know, uh, sort of better stewardship facilities and all of that. But, you know, laying the groundwork of doing quality work and building a network of people that support you and funders that trust you, um, you know, partners like U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that trust you to go out and actually do, uh, you know, a really good project in a good area and not just, you know, sign up for a good project in a good area, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, following through is not, uh, that doesn't always happen on those projects. And uh, we're we're building that reputation and, and doing the good work on the ground. And um, it's a good place to be for me. It's uh, it's certainly going to burn me up into a pile of ashes <laughs> by the time I'm done. But, but uh, what better thing to do it? Yeah. So how did you come to beat what, what was your path to to come so um here? strangely enough um i grew up in like right around benton white tippecanoe county in the middle of a bunch of cornfields and uh really no nature around at all um and didn't have really i didn't get all that much experience in nature as a kid uh although the moments that i did have were pretty striking for me and i were memorable um i i worked in you know restaurants and retail and I initially went to Purdue uh, when I graduated high school, you know, in psychology and French major, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> majoring and getting out of my house. Uh, and so, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't get on this path until I was 26 years old. I, um, you know, doing some hiking and stuff and, you know, pay, starting to pay attention to some plants and just really feeling awful about my job working as a restaurant manager, uh, you know, just you know, how am I going to do this every day and in and out? And, you know, is making more money going to matter? And, uh, I just decided I'm going to make a plan and I'm going to pay up all my bills ahead of time and save as much money as I can. And I'm going to quit my job in a year. I, I started to, I talked to Dr. Carol Limby at Purdue. Uh, I just found her name somewhere online and went in and talked to her and I was like, Hey, I want to study plants. I don't have any idea what why <laughs> i just i just want to learn about something that uh even if i don't get to do it for my job i'll know about something that actually is relevant and matters as a human being mm -hmm. and so uh you know that's how i went into it and uh i studied environmental plant science at purdue uh i helped start a student-run farm there a sustainable farm um and you know, that was really great. And I thought maybe I want to be a small farmer and, you know, still you have to like sell things and, you know, that stress of 
you know, okay, when is it okay to apply some, you know, uh, some seven to my plants because they're all going to get devastated by caterpillars and, you know, I just couldn't handle that sort of situation. And so uh, I was lucky to get an internship with Ecologic uh, and I spent a summer working in, in and around Bloomington and Louisville in the Olmstead Parks Department, which is really cool. Um, and I also got to work for six weeks in the Hoosier National Forest where uh, I was with another person who actually was worked for Ecologic and Niches, and Brad Waggle. Um, and I was there with him, uh, you know, as an experienced person in the field. And we got to work in these glades in uh, Perry County, mm-hmm. you know, right by near the Wabat or the Ohio River. And, you know, we spent all day, it was a drought year, 2012, I think, uh, a drought year, and it was super, super drying up in these glades. I mean, it was like super dry, you know, mm-hmm. gritting your teeth all day dry. And, uh, you know, we would work up there and work in these glades. And I learned all these prairie plants, you know, in these big glades, you know, Blazing Star and Prairie Dock and, uh, you know, Turk's Cap Lily and all these other plants that, you know, really you think you learn those in northern Indiana or whatever, mm-hmm. but a oh, perfect scenario. So I went through my my season there. I graduated one semester later from Purdue. And I had no idea what I was going to do. I I, you know, thought, okay, well, I can do, uh, I can do ecological restoration on my own. I just have to buy some tools and stuff. I could like do that as a, my own, you know, contractor or whatever. And, uh, Brad had encouraged me to go volunteer for niches and I started to do that. Um, and so I was showing up at these volunteer days and chatting with Gus and he was sort of gauging my plant skills and things and, uh, you know, sort of kicking the tires on me and my philosophies about things and whatever. And, and he, you know, thought, okay, this is, it seems like a good fit. Um, my best opportunity outside of that was to be interpretive naturalist at Turkey Run, mm-hmm. which Barbara Cummings was falling over herself to hire me, but she's like, you don't want this job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to make, you know, seven fifty an hour and you're going to feed the bird feeders and, you know, mm-hmm. clean the bathrooms and, you know, you may get to do an interpretive thing and you may get to kill some invasive species or something, but you're just, otherwise you're just going to kind of be here mm-hmm. and be liaison and, you know, that was an hour plus drive to get down there. And I'm like seven fifty an hour. Like this is turning out to be pretty bad plan on my part. And then luckily I got a phone call from Gus and he said, you know, they were interested in hiring me. Um, he took me out and put me on some awful jobs that were super way far behind. And, um, I started into those jobs with determination. Like I had never done anything in my life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I really, worked like a madman and did like a perfect job of killing like a hundred acres of Osage orange and was like, hey, what do you think? You know? And he was like, Holy, are you serious? Well, I don't think you missed one. And like, yeah, I've been out here every day and, you know, <laughs> carrying my chainsaw and my herbicide and everything out and girdling and treating the cuts and come home and eat, you know, three dinners and fall asleep <laughs> on the floor at six thirty and get up and do it again the next day. And that earned me my spot where I went from, you know, they give me a temporary job, you know, eight months to see how you do or whatever. Mm-hmm. And at the end of three months, I finished like three projects and, um, and they were like, we're just going to give you the, the stewardship manager job. And I've been doing that, um, ever since then I've been, uh, oh geez, what is this? Eight years this month yeah. that I've been with niches now. And I've seen us go from, you know, add, you know, 1500 acres and, expand our programs greatly and uh it's been really great to be a part of that and and sort of mm, you know live up to 
the best potential of what we can do. And, you know, I constantly pushing the organization to expand capacity and you have to balance that with being, you know, financially secure. Mm -hmm. We have, we have stewardship endowments that the organization has wisely, you know, put money into those things where, you know, they give us a return, you know, and once you get to a certain point, which we're over, I think $2 million in one of the stewardship endowments. And, you know, that basically funds a full-time steward mm -hmm. like forever. And so even if whatever happens to the organization, things crumble and everything goes bad, you still have this fund that pays for stewardship. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really, that's a smart way of sort of approaching, you know, making sure that you've got, that you can do what you're going to do for uh, the amount of time that you say, which is forever, right? Like we're, we're protecting these properties forever. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in my mind, if I just leave everything the way it is out here, that's not protecting it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you're just joining in on watching it disappear. Um, and yeah, I mean, some stuff will stay forever, you know, like, you know, they'll, you know, the, the sandstone bluffs are not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, like some of this stuff is just, is a treasure on its own, but you know, the blanket of life that is in this place, it's losing pieces all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that and we know how to fix that. And so, um, I'm grateful that, to be supported in coming and doing this work and um i've become pretty good at it too I, <laughs> it's fun to to go through and you know judge all the trees and and drop them and open up light and and then to come back and see what that does in the spring and almost always it's you know it fills your sort of motivation right back up and uh you get tired of grinding from one three season into the next one but um, again, you know, every spring is so sweet now, you know, like mm -hmm. when you first see the plants come back, when you first see the stuff come up in a restoration or you first see it all bloom and just be full of bees or, or, you know, go into this Shawnee Bottoms restoration that's close in the summertime and just flushing a thousand goldfinches, mm -hmm. you know, you're just like that wasn't here, you know, like there was nothing, this was a field and those birds didn't have this resource. And like, because you put it in this perfect spot it means so much more like mm -hmm. it's not on some marginal soils in some place where you know it's going to get flooded by the river and all get destroyed or whatever it's in this place where if you put this seed here and you put enough species and enough seed you should be able to you know start uh, a barren's prairie savanna type of deal that now should survive there for millennia if it's allowed to um and that's managing for climate change too i mean we're not just tree species right like these grasses, they grow super deep into the ground. They can live through drought forever. Uh, they store carbon in their roots as opposed to tree trunks that fall over and then go back into the atmosphere. Like, you know, grasslands actually store carbon a lot better than a woodland. And when you can sort of marry those two and double up the diversity of the plant species, that's going to help, you know, all the animal species that are around too, especially if you're really using the right stuff where, you know, maybe you've got a species of bee that can survive on spring beauties but it would also use, you know, some other basic plant that's out in the middle of an old field and that's mm -hmm. not there. Well, now maybe you can restore that and, you know, bring up those sort of available resources to things that should be, you know, thriving in this place. You know, bees don't move from one spot to another. Like if you've got bumblebees in the woods or whatever, they use that spot and then they die. If mm -hmm. they, if the resources are gone, they just don't live anymore. And so when a natural area just becomes so degraded that everything blinks out, you know, that's not, things aren't just going to come right back in there. I mean, you need to, we can't let it slide anymore, basically. Mm-hmm.
And, you know, we'll probably all get covered in a sheet of ice someday and none of it will matter at all. But, <laughs> <laughs> but for now. But for now. Yeah. Exactly. So okay. as we leave here, then I'll, I'll go ahead and drive by some of the county stuff and just on our way back. Yeah, I couldn't decide what to look at because Shawnee's got a little bit of everything. It's got old restorations, new restorations. It's got a really fantastic beaver colony that's like, they use the old towpath of the Wabash Street Canal as a dam. And they've impounded water in two separate areas over the last, oh, six years or so. And they've totally changed the area completely. And, uh, yeah, see two wheel drives. Don't work out here. And what's great, too, is you, you end up beaver too right like as you as you are like removing invasive species they are opening up light and so if you don't do anything all the areas they open up will probably fill in with rows and stuff and if you do go out there one of the spots by the beaver dam <coughs> I had a clump of uh, rose turtle head come up which is a pretty uncommon plant yeah. and uh, actually never have been recorded from Fountain County until now. And, uh, you know, that's just sort of the, like, yeah, okay, this is one of those things that should be naturally occurring too, that isn't, you know? Uh, well, previously, because we exterminated the beers and, you know, we still, people see them cutting on trees and they, they trap them and they take them out. And, you know, people even offer to me, they're like, I'm gonna get rid of those beers. Uh -huh. I go, no, uh, this is a nature preserve, so. They can cut all the trees they want, and uh, you know, I'll take whatever they're doing is the right thing. And they actually inspired me in some cases to cut harder than I would have because you see them clear all the trees from a spot, and what happens in there, and you're like, oh man, like just picking and choosing species sometimes is not enough in an area to really sort of give it a reset. And you know, you see them do it, and like, man, I. <laughs> they they harvested, you know, 500 little sugar or silver maples, you know, and stumps, and now they're all surrounded with sedges, and, uh, you know, you cringe a little bit because they, they definitely uh, took out some big white bur oaks and stuff that you're like, ah, if you'd have left that one tree, that would have been perfect to get this back together, and, uh, you know, you got to take the good and the bad on that. I hope nobody gets a flat tire on this road from those wood chips. If we can make it through all the forestry mowing and keep everybody friends, I think we'll have a good long relationship uh -huh. with everybody. That's great. Right down the road, there's this guy named Leon Phillips, and 
Sophia. He's in his 80s and he's been living out here for his whole life and um, he sold us a part of his property that is now part of Shawnee Bottoms and it was a 23 acre or so track that allowed us to make a 5k loop trail uh, because he's got the middle section where we owned on either side of it and then he owned a portion of the Scotts Pond that's you know, a big beautiful pond and it's got you know button bush and uh, and uh, hibiscus, native hibiscus, ringing the outside edge of it. It's just really gorgeous. It looks like mangroves or something. And uh, so we completed the ownership of that, and he had these caveats where he's like, well, I want to still mow this section by the pond, and I want to still maintain this lane. I still want to get firewood from down on the ground in here. You know, he keeps a, his whole life, he's kept a three-year supply of firewood on hand so that, you know, if he gets sick or something and he can't cut any wood, he'll be fine. And... Um, so we allowed him to maintain, to keep all that the way it was, even though we wouldn't have had it that way. Uh, as far as like he wanted to mow, you know, uh, half an acre by the pond, and we're like, yeah, that's a huge area, you know, that's why. And you know, that's just how he had maintained it. And now that he's kept it that way, and we've done camping events and had 4-H kids come out and paddle the pond, so we're like, yeah, okay, this is like worth it to keep it this way. And uh, that's been a great joy too, sort of taking these properties from these people with their trust that you're going to do something good with it and being able to do that is like the greatest gift that you can give to somebody that allows their property that they've loved for their whole lives to come to you whether they sell it to you or whether they donate it to you or whatever um, and Leon's no exception just you know I call him up and tell him what's going on sometime. hey Leon we're in here cutting some sugar maples that are green you know if you want to get out here with Tony you know down the road and scope it out and maybe you can harvest some of that off the ground and get it put up for future firewood and he's all about it and uh you know then he's helping clean up the mess of the down trees and stuff and uh you know just building and keeping those relationships is uh the most important thing and I feel like the most important thing I can do for that to happen is just work as hard and be as honest and uh selfless in what I'm doing as possible uh, and really do the things that I know need to be done whether they're uncomfortable or difficult or whatever uh, you know don't short yourself uh, and you won't end up shorting anybody else either Leon and Betty live up here on the left so yeah this is <laughs> to meet at Johnny Bottoms I was like I drove after I worked at Whistler Hair yesterday and I was like mm, it's not too good out here <laughs> They, uh, I think they look at the forecast, and if there's a melt, you know, within about 10 or 15 days, they're like, eh, everybody will be all right out here. So, you look this way. Uh, the trees and stuff that you see past these ones that are around these houses real close you know this is all Shawnee Bottoms that wraps around all the way that way um, to the road and it also goes that way way around the corner 500 acres and uh, you know we pieced that together one piece at a time the original tract uh, for Shawnee Bottoms was a new core um, 
mitigation project that our founder Susan Ulrich is just like uh, a saint, and she she made niches happen. Basically, you know, uh, initially on her own, she took the initiative to form the the official organization, and um, you know, worked on getting us our first couple properties at Wabash Bottoms and Marlow Leopold uh, on the sort of Native and Warren County edge. And then this property came around in 2000, uh, and it was, you know, I think the first tract was a couple hundred acres and, uh, you know, a lot of floodplain, and they did some floodplain tree plantings, which a lot of them got devastated by floods and ice sheets the two subsequent years. Um, but she was smart to target that area because it was so close to Portland Arch, and now, uh, in our 26th year, that's this year, uh, you know, we've expanded that original 200 acres to over 500 and added another 140 acres inside the township and uh, improved those acres greatly through invasive removal and fire thinning. Uh, but, you know, her foresight to see that that property was the smart place to start, uh, you know, it wasn't much. It was like farm fields and a little strip of woods and part of a pond, you know, and this old field up here. So this is the beginning. This is the original uh, ag ground that was restored at Shawnee Bottoms, and it's got a lot of, you know, big blue stem and Indian grass and goldenrod and stuff in it up here, but it's also got white oaks that were planted, um, oh geez, I want to say that was about 10 years ago, uh, I think in 2010 or so, they planted white oaks out there and caged them, and as we drive around, you'll see that they've done really well and uh, there's actually more a higher density out there than what you need for sort of savanna like structure and eventually we'll once they put on some size we'll be able to start incorporating that into the burn units and uh, as soon as they can some of those trees can sustain the fire but you know we've constantly been working hard in this area and this just doesn't do the restorations like this so much anymore where it's just kind of simple mix and then plant trees most of the time we're trying to put down you know as diverse a mix as we can you know provided we're working in a really a good worthy spot you know we want to put down the best mix uh, that we can of open site species and then allow the oaks to colonize that area on their own but you can see you know this has worked here too you know those white oaks are of substantial size they've all had the cages removed from them you know they're not in danger of being killed by deer or anything anymore uh, I'd say most of those trees are about eight or ten feet tall, maybe some a little bit taller. Uh, and there's some other, some bur oaks and some other species that have naturalized in there as well. Not to mention, you know, lots of other good herbaceous species around. Um, and, you know, in the bottom land, we, uh, I said those tree plantings that they did in the bottoms, you know, they went through some pretty tough times. Uh, but a lot of the pecan trees that were put in there have survived and they're going to be there and, and they're good. There's a lot of sycamore trees down there that are, you know, uh, sort of, you know, 12, 14 inch uh, diameter breast height and they're seed producing seed regularly. Um, so uh, there's a lot of re-canary grass, which is a major problem in all the floodplain areas, but uh, we have enough large sized trees now established that um, they're eventually going to shade out the re-canary grass and they will ryegrass comes in like immediately as soon as those trees you know close up the the, the, the sunlight that's what we're seeing in all the establishing uh, maturing tree plantings in the bottomlands and so everything down there is on its path and it's good to go and uh, we're still chipping away and working this is one thing just a little thing that 
bothers me when I drive by here and I see this big beautiful white oak <clears throat> and it's just crowded with all these stems underneath it and just needs to have all that stuff cut out um, yeah. and it would be a really beautiful uh, spot to open up for the roadside but again that's like not part of a big project and so um, you sort of have to just drive by it a bunch of times but I've actually got a plan in action right now where this big project at Whistler Hare Woods you know getting help from Ecologic to do that is hopefully going to allow us to do follow-up work on all the major projects we've done over the last eight years throughout the service area for invasive removal and thinning and as we've been doing more prescribed fires so this is a beaver pond right here as we've been doing more prescribed fires and keep on with uh, you know managing things and opening them up if you can go back and do that follow-up and remove the last bit of invasives and stuff man now you're really getting some resiliency in that system so like it's all covered with snow right now but mm -hmm. this is all beaver pond oh, okay. and you can see stumps in there uh -huh. and if you look back there down along the towpath if you look straight down there uh -huh. you can actually see the the lodge it's oh, huge oh yeah right that that bump there yeah, yeah it's got you can see the bare sticks on the top where they've nice. they keep adding to it <laughs> <clears throat> and you know that has changed this place so drastically the first year that they impounded water there were tens of thousands of northern leopard frog froglets just everywhere and then now inside that beaver pond it's this is kind of a local secret but there's like a dinner plate sized bluegill and stuff in there and you know they're making their way up from the river and we put a trail camera on the the obvious path that the beavers were using to get into the lodge and when we did that we caught six otters all together uh, a blue heron stabbing a fish right in the little stream right there you know deer and turkey and just every wild animal uh we've photographed bobcats over here okay. so this is the really good restoration like hang my hat on restoration that's got you know i initially we put in like 120 some species or 130 species and then this year actually in the second year of the restoration we were able to burn it in the first year because we had some annual switchgrass come up and provide fuel for a burn after the first growing season which is really really great getting ahead of uh of things and so after that burn all the prairie plants you know everything established itself everything bloomed this last year it all looks great but i could find some places that were really barren where you know you could tell it's just that sandstone uh sort of residuum soil and in those areas you'd see oh like the sky blue aster that was in the drill mix did well uh gray goldenrod that was in the mix did well but then you have a lot of mare's tail and and common ragweed that whole or, uh yeah common ragweed not giant ragweed that hang on in those areas as annuals until something supplants them and so in the second year you can see that you know where are the areas that are just like really barren and then i collected like 60 species over this last year mm -hmm. and overseeded those areas i went out and and mowed all that material down in those main areas which in the original seeding i actually did that too but you have to guess kind of mm -hmm. you just go to the high point you're like okay well this is probably the driest spot over here mm -hmm. it's got you know it's banked towards the sun it's on the high ridge and then you you know stuff that you only have a couple ounces of it doesn't work to put that in the whole mix because you may spread them all out where they're not even going to come in contact with each other because you don't have enough. Well, so you pick a spot in this field, and there's a stream that runs through the middle that has tree line, and there's another field on the other side. So you pick the high points, and I put three areas where I interceded by hand some stuff, and everything else got drilled. 
and I also did mixes for the edges. But then um, this last season, I went out and I mowed a ring around those areas because you could see them clearly. I could I could be on the tractor, mm-hmm. and I could see specifically Drymalcalis arguta. Uh, I could see that species up to the edge, and I mowed all around those areas that I interceded. And then we moved the seed from inside of there into that ring to expand that area to be larger. And then we overseeded with other species outside of that where the areas were really barren. And so we we let the soils tell us where the real barren pockets are supposed to be so that we could target that with this really high quality sort of more rare seed that's harder for us to get and able to add that diversity out there. So now, you know, that's all just seed out there right now. You know, those 60 Mm -hmm. species that I collected from here and there and, you know, all this precious stuff, you have to just go out and throw it in the ground. (laughs) And then, you know, uh, I think I'm really encouraged by this snowpack this year. I think Mm -hmm. it's going to help a lot. Um, It's getting, everything is getting good seed soil contact under a sheet of ice out there. I didn't have to seed over a sheet of ice, so that Mm -hmm. was good. Uh, Mm -hmm. Our other restoration that we did in Western Warren County, uh, or Williams Woods property, it got air seeded. We had Ecologic do that with the centrifugal skid steer spreader. Like that's what Kankakee Sands does for there instead of drilling. Mm-hmm. And so like, hey, this is a cheaper thing. I think that it'll work just fine for what we've got. We had a really great seed mix. We we got $31,000 through the Equip program to do the restoration. So got a really great commercial mix and we hand collected a bunch of stuff. And um, that all went down in some rain, light rain right before all of this cold and freeze and snow so it all got sort of in this like slurry of like wet muddiness Mm -hmm. and then boom got frozen underneath and i i have high hopes for that one as well but i'm really looking forward to you know the acre or so of sand barrens that's on this far side that got overseeded with all that cool stuff Mm -hmm. and just seeing like yeah can you do that you make that your plan instead of collecting that stuff in the year that you put the main mix down do what you can uh, and collect the stuff to put on the high points, but then wait for the second year. And those areas that are super barren are not going to be filled in with plants that are not annuals. I mean, if you've got nothing but annual plants there for the most part and you put down all these barren species, they're going to do well. Uh, and all those annual species will drop out and you won't have these patches of mare's tail and, and ragweed. You'll have what should be there, which mm-hmm. is a patch of high quality, you know, specific species that over millennia found their way into this little spot. Well, you just have to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to be a millennia. Yeah. This is like the best thing that I've done for yeah. sure. It's a really interesting way to look at it. I, I like that. Uh, I guess that thought process or for lack of a better word but just yeah being being the time be a millennia yeah <laughs> I, I think that's the first time i've ever said that so uh, it's interesting you know i like to be able to do this with someone like you or whatever you just ask me the question and let me talk and then uh i sort of all the stuff that i'm kind of working out in my head all the time comes out and so here's the guy that just loves us to death because he's got this beautiful restoration right behind his house. You know, you look up his deck and it's mm-hmm. flowers and birds and bees and butterflies. Yeah. And then everything to the river over here is part of Shawnee Bottoms as well. Nice. Um, and so, you know, we've got this cool section that's got kind of 
oak savanna like stuff in here and sandstone bluffs and then uh that's all river floodplain it's got mature really neat strip of mature floodplain uh you know cottonwoods and silver maples that are just all surrounded with sand and you know it's like walking on a sand dune if it's clear vegetation and so the next project that we want to do here is we're going to work with this guy and cut all this honeysuckle that's mm -hmm. right here out and finish what's on us on this side that's all sort of like the in-betweens of the big projects that we've done here that weren't you know able to be lumped into a, a big project and so you'll be able to see here where our property starts uh, it's been fecon mode and this little area hasn't been so as we come around this corner here you, you'll be able to see the difference between what it looked like and what it looks like now and i was able to show this to the people at whistler hair woods too and be like hey this is what it looked like after we ran the machine through here yeah. what do you think about that and they're like oh that looks good you know yeah. like and and honestly to me like i still see where it needs to go and it doesn't look good to me yet mm -hmm. uh, but if you look out through here as we pull up a little bit further you'll see you know the cornerstone is here right these oak trees are the cornerstone of this place it's you don't need any more than that to turn it all into perfect oak savanna mm -hmm. you just need to scrape away this other stuff um and this is a really cool spot too because down here this slopes down into like this seepage wetland and there's a button bush there's a pond over here shallow pond that's surrounded by button bush and then it's got like blue joint grass and all these cool wetland species and carex trichocarpa and all this cool stuff and i found Oh, uh, I found an orchid species in there, um, a Platanthera, uh, Platanthera flava, I think. Can't remember which which one it is, but really high quality area, you know, blooming irises and stuff. And the ash trees were starting to die in there, so it's opening up more light. And then we went ahead and thinned more silver maples out. And there's all these great swamp white oaks. So I mean, that's what we've kind of got through this whole strip of Shawnee Bottoms is. You know white oak and black oak mostly white oak dominated uplands these pockets where there's sandstone exposures and pines exist still and then in the low areas where the sandstone you know forms a, a small basin mm -hmm. and the water runs through you've got uh swamp white oak dominated areas and so you know those have pin oak as a component but the swamp white oak is really the dominant thing through those areas and so really you know as you move along the river we've got two over two miles of river frontage on the property mm -hmm. and not to mention all the streams that run through it but then the upland woods that are across the area you know now they're all sort of stitched together with these restorations and now on their way to you know finishing out the invasive work and continuing to return fire so that they can sort of naturalize and feather out and you know again i'll i'll go through this project we'll run the fecal mower we'll spray everything out i'll come and i'll cut some trees and you know do that initial push and then i may come back later and be like okay like all of these hickory trees in this spot should get cut you know like mm -hmm. and it's all just case by case basis mm -hmm. um on every property and it's always different because you know i found uh asclepias sylvantii prairie milkweed mm -hmm. just on the side of the road over here mm -hmm. and you're like there's no place where that's like existing in an open space out here anymore so like yeah i'm putting that in this mix in this restoration and you're you know that you're restoring the right thing mm -hmm. because you found it on the side of the road i mean uh -huh. and you know things like i planted in uh new jersey tea 
and prairie willow uh, and lead plant into the middle of that restoration. It was drilled and then I brought an ecology class from Purdue out and we planted like 500 prairie shrubs on the high points. And you know, those things are in the record at Portland Arch, but there's no habitat that supports that species, those species at Portland Arch anymore. And I did find one little lone prairie willow just like hanging on the edge of a place before I ever included it, you know, in the project. Because you can see the records, you know it was there, and you know none of those areas exist here anymore. So, you know, why would we not, you know, use that information to uh, restore these species and these habitats? And so, you know, you can see we own all the way up to here, and this is the town of Fountain. But then on the other side of this little town here is Portland Arch. So, I mean, uh, and they actually can physically connect outside of town here. It's a big place. restoration projects is like the connectivity possibility and like seeing a project or like you know how you all have stitched this together as you have is is fantastic and uh but then it also like you know when you bring up the the pecan like is it connected enough that that would have gone gotten there without assistance anyways and uh so like you know, I mean, I don't know, it's all, uh, every part of this is, is really cool. Yeah, uh, sort of no corners of the thought process have gone unexplored. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, this, so now right here where we look, this is Portland Arch here. This, I think this field is even owned by them now. Uh, and so this field right here is owned by these people the smalls that have this longhorn cattle farm mm. and that meets our restoration right there okay so if we were to restore if we were to get these fields from them where they have their cattle now we could restore this out to this road and then Fort Lawrence would be there and of yeah. course there's a road in between <laughs> yeah but <coughs> but that's uh, about as connected as we can get which is not too bad I mean uh, and even the way it sits right now Having a cattle pasture out here, surrounded by restorations and natural woodlands and streams and stuff is still, you know, uh, pretty good. These people actually suspiciously own a lot of parcels next to our property. <laughs> Where, like, I don't know if they're banking on a retirement uh, deal or something, or maybe they're... You never know. Uh, we get surprised sometimes by estate plan properties that we have no idea people don't want to be involved sometimes mm -hmm. uh, and they will just wait until they die and then you'll discover that they left all these properties to you mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times we know ahead of time but there are those surprises where it's just like oh we decided to like help you without talking to you about it and here's all these parcels uh -huh. which by the way if anybody is listening <laughs> just tell us <laughs> we want to know
yeah, there's a lot of potential out here, you know, and I even look at the map and I look, you know, everything we're doing on this side of the river, we've got properties on the other side of the river, not right on the river, but on like along tributaries, Rock Creek and Dry Ranch. And you can see, you know, the ag ground that's across the river, it's all a terrace. And, you know, you can find on an old map from 1800s, it'll say, you know, the terrace prairie. It's like, man, if you had somebody that really had the money, they could just buy all of that ag ground right there and restore it to, you know, uh, short stature dry prairie. And man, you can connect all the woodland on this side and all the woodland on that side on the river and have a, you know, functioning, movable sort of uh, terrace prairie of large scale inside there. You know, I'm sure there's probably multiple owners of that, but I mean, we've already stitched a lot together anyway. And, you know, uh, the hope is just to be able to improve your capacity to be able to do stuff like that and and not to sweat it, you know, where you you know you've got money to acquire X amount of land and uh, to be able to restore X amount of land and uh, looking at places like Kinky Sands that, you know, that was where my boss cut his teeth on doing some really major restoration work. I mean, they've restored 10,000 connected acres there. Uh, it's crazy, and, uh, you know, nobody thought that they could do that, but they did, and, uh, you know, why can't we do that here, and on the Big Pine Creek, and around Black Rock, and, you know, we can. It just takes time and support, you know, people have to feel like, you know, if they love their property, and they want it to be, you know, as good as it can be in the way that we, you know, see as the best way, as being ecologically diverse and functional, and uh, supporting, you know, species that are in decline. If they see that and they want to be a part of that, then, you know, some of these people are just allowing us to include their properties in burn units and do funded projects on their properties to buffer our own work. And they see that they can't do this on their own. And, um, and, so, and so then you hope that they see the value of those properties being incorporated into the preserve. Uh, without pressuring them to do so, just letting them know, you know, if the funding were available, we would be interested in purchasing, and so then they know that. Um, and in the meantime, we will do all this work for nothing on your property because it's we're, we're accomplishing our mission without having to buy the property. Uh, and then you hope that what you do, you know, you build a castle in the sky and then you put the foundation underneath there later. That's a throw quote. <laughs> Not exactly, but a paraphrase. Uh -huh. <laughs> I noticed you had a throw quote in your email. That, yeah. You know, whatever. Uh, it's Reading Walden was actually a really big inspiration for me changing my life and getting into conservation and stuff. And if I... If I listen to literary scholars, he's not saying what I think he's saying a lot of times, but um, sometimes I think I'm right and they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the idea of like, his whole idea of like uh, presenting the extreme in order to sort of, uh, you know, give you the direction to shoot in. You know, like, yeah, you can't be perfect, but, you know, this would be the perfect, most minimal, uh, most connected and real way. Um, so, you know, shoot your arc in that direction. Uh, I, 
think that's a technique that I don't I know if there's a word for it or not, but there's not really a good set, uh, you know, straightforward, you know, from the book approach to do this stuff. You know, there just isn't. That's not out there. Um, and even the people that have been doing this for the longest amount of time, you know, thinking of like places around the Chicago region and stuff that have been, you know, burning regularly for 30 years or whatever, or, you know, there's some places out in, you know, Missouri and, and Iowa and stuff where they've been doing Savannah restorations and burning annually for, you know, 30, 40 years. You know, they still don't have all the answers about, you know, what, you know, seasonality of fire. There's just so many little details of doing stuff and like, one of my you know, I, countless revelations I've had over, you know, the past 10 years, and some of those being, like, okay, well, when you float on the Big Pine Creek, and you see prairie plants on the bluff, it's not because sandstone bluffs are some secondary habitat for these these prairie plants that they've been on, you know, it's because there was a prairie there, I mean, I, and that's why, and they're still existing here, so, like, okay, um, does it really make sense to, like, track and monitor the forked aster on these bluffs along the creek where they're clinging on for dear life in a place where they can still get some sunlight and not put them in the restoration on the other side of, of the property because they're rare where they're occurring in this like yeah you only see them there because by 1870 there was no habitat for them to still be living in so yeah they live on the bluff because they're just eking it out and like in reality, you know, and then lo and behold, you get a paper, uh, you know, talking about Nachusa grasslands or someone, I can't remember exactly if it was them, but, you know, where they're like, yeah, we started putting the forecaster into the savannah restorations and they like naturalized perfectly, like they totally belong there. It's like, well, they do, you know, like uh, putting everything into a tiny little box, I, I, I feel this like pressure from some people that don't want to alter things because they want nature to go on the way it's doing but at the same time they'll be like okay these are the rare types of natural areas in indiana sandstone bluff wet music forest you know whatever they have all these categories and you know everything fits into 12 categories or something and then when you want to do some restoration project with a rare plant and it doesn't have a record from that property even though you're restoring it to the right habitat and it's like right in the area where you know, the populations would have thrived when it was a common plant. Like, oh, well, every natural area is special and different. And, you know, you shouldn't just go around, you know, adding rare plants into, you know, this place because you don't know if it ever actually occurred there. It's like, well, <clears throat> which way is it? Yeah. Does everything fit into 12 categories? Or is everything its own unique, you know, thing? And, you know, those things are... Those two views are simultaneously held by people in the same conversation. Uh-huh. And, you know, it doesn't make any sense, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, I don't know, that makes me think of uh, just, just recently a conversation about, like, burning and, like, um, is it actually a good burn if you miss some spots? You know, but then yes, it is because you're leaving that refugia for for things. Yeah. That, you know, otherwise. That's natural. Yeah, but it doesn't look right to some some people's eyes. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And and I understand, like, you know, again, that's it's 
it's not always the same, right? Like, uh, there have been places where we've done the burn, and it's been suggested to me, you know, maybe don't do internals and just let it go where it's going to go. It's like, well, I happen to know that there's about three acres of multi-floor rows out in the middle of this place that I didn't get fire right now, and, like, I wanted that to burn so I can come and follow up spray it. You know, and so, you know, doing the internal ignition sometimes. And then part of it is this, you know, everything's connected, right? So when you're thinking about at the Black Rock Barrens, when we do a burn there, it's like a hundo. You know, it, it totally burns because there's oak leaf litter for days because it never breaks down. It's just sitting on the siltstone. And, and in reality, it shouldn't be that way, right? Why? Because the canopy shouldn't be a hundred. You know, there's too many oak trees. So those oak trees create a leaf litter layer in one year that covers everything. Mm -hmm. So as you're burning, yeah, you're opening up light, you're regenerating, you're rejuvenating, but there is stuff on that siltstone that would be much better off if there wasn't a big thick leaf litter there. And the way that you get there is you start to kill trees mm -hmm. and you burn the leaf litter away and then there's less leaves that fall on the ground. Yeah. And so, you know, even going out and doing the burn in a place like that, you know, getting 100% coverage uh, is not necessarily what you want in there because mm -hmm. there are fire sensitive species that grow on the rock mm -hmm. but you know you may exclude those you know if you're if you're never reducing the amount of trees and you always just burn you, you know that leaf litter layer is always going to be thicker than it should be so you know again it's all connected and you know some some places you're dying to get fuel to carry the fire you know and we have that too where 100 acre unit on the mud pine where I initially did that 100 acres of Osage work. You know, Osage was the dominant tree on that property. Now, there's nice burr oaks in there, there's nice white oaks in there, there's shingle oaks, there's really diverse herbaceous layer in there, but it's been grazed into oblivion. There's all this Osage because of that. You know, the cattle were, were spreading, you know, regenerating Osage. And, you know, a huge black locust clone that I worked on that was, you know, uh, like at least, you know, half an acre or something large. And, you know, you go out there to burn and only some places will carry a fire in there because only some places have enough oak leaf litter to do it. And, you know, now slowly graminoids are increasing and we've got, you know, common wood reed and some other grasses and such and stuff coming back that will help. Uh, at least create sort of a fluffy situation where the the other leaf litter will sort of be up off the ground and have a better chance of carrying a fire but in reality you know it needs to be opened up more so that there's more sunlight hitting the ground and things stay a little drier and you need to regenerate oaks in there for the future and you're not going to have you know a raging fire in there probably you know while i'm managing it um but that's okay because if you consistently burn the areas that will burn the you know the low graminoid filled wetlands the big open bluffs that are nice and dry uh there's a little terrace prairie remnant deal in there that's got some switchgrass and some cytoscrama and some rare forbs uh but also crown vetch and 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 pasture grass you know think it's not it's not like a 10 out of 10 habitat or anything it's just got some rare components that area will always burn uh and the forbs that are you know fire adapted do really well when you do that burn but the crown vetch and the, and the cool season grass does pretty well too <clears throat> and you know a lot of times my argument is I can't fix that spot anymore but I can
take seed from that rare forb and put it with the other species that it should be with in a high quality restoration where it doesn't have any cool season grass or uh, you know some dominant invasive forb all around it and it will actually do better in that area more than likely than it will do in this area that it actually belongs in. And so, you know, where do you draw the line? The species I'm talking about is very rare and maybe we have the only functional population of it in the state, but, uh, you know, we could let that just go on in that spot or we can try to get that into some restorations and see if we can revive a functioning population that regularly gets burned and is not surrounded by non-native species and you know again everything's case by case basis and um, a lot of ins and outs and I, I definitely have all the rare species you know state rare, rare or endangered they're all on my radar and I know what they all need um, and I do give them special attention uh, but really their care and management hinges upon the holistic management of the property um, and in some cases like that, you would be foolish not to try to establish a population in a place like Shawnee Bottoms where you're able to put, you know, 190 species in the mix and include that species. And I had it in there, and after the first year, there was, you know, a tall, blue, a tall stem of it established in there. And so next year, I went and got my 30% of the seed from the site. I took it out there and I seeded it all around the one that established. It's like, well, you hit it. I mean, obviously, it worked. So, um, you know, why not try to establish them in this spot? You just can't be too much of a purist about anything because you need to wiggle out of those sort of constraints sometimes to do what's actually the right thing to do. And, I've got some uh, some mentors that are really good and uh, and have helped me a lot. Uh, my boss Gus Nyberg, but his dad Dennis Nyberg, uh, he's been doing this stuff for you know way longer than us, and uh, he's got lots of great great advice and that sort of meshes with what I see in real life. And you know, some people that know a lot about plants really don't know much about you know managing a natural area, and so. Uh, you know, that's, those are different things, really. Uh, and so, you know, who you listen to, listen to those practitioners, listen to the people that have been conducting fire for decades, uh, and managing invasive species for decades, and, and monitoring restoration work for decades. Um, that's where you should really get your trusted information from, and your own eyes and ears. Uh, and, you know, I've, similar to other people sometimes people will say oh you know you're doing it this way because it's the artist in you and you're you're you know you're outside of the box and like no this is like I had Tom Swinford uh, of uh, Nature Preserves tell me no I do it because it's the right thing to do like it's not it's not that it's not about who I am it's about this the, all the factors that are in this situation and taking them all into account and then making the best decision for the things that you're concerned about. And, uh, you know, that's, it's a lot to deal with and some people are made to do it and some people are not. I encourage you, if you're, uh, if you feel like you're made to do it, then stick with it and find a place to do some good. And if you're not made to do it, then maybe don't. <laughs>
solid words of advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. A, a pleasure to be able to talk about the work and, and get that information out to other people that are doing things in the field. And uh, you know, I'd be happy to, you know, if you can find my contact info on our website. And uh, if you got any sort of things that you want to reach out and, and talk about or projects that you're doing and or anything like that, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to uh, converse with people about that and sort of um, help each other sort of not have to repeat the same mistakes. And, um, you know, I'm open for that and hopefully we'll hear from other people. Awesome. Thank you again to Bob for discussing the awesome work Niches is doing. I've included links to Niches Land Trust's website and their YouTube channel on the page for this episode at midwestoration.com. Thanks to you for listening, and know you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app, and stay tuned for more Midwestoration.